and how they relate to Christianity has to be understood in light of what's going on with the progress of the Gospel and the extension of the Kingdom around the world. Because, it may be hard for us to understand this, but we are no longer at the epicenter of where the most activity in terms of church growth is going on in the world. Up until being the last century, of course, the centers of Christianity were in the north. First, the northeast. I'm talking about hemispherically now, not the United States of America. We look at the world. Of course, the first center of Christianity was in the northeast. Europe. Scandinavia. Then, with the drying up of the church in the northeast, the new center became the northwest. United States, Canada, Mexico. Now, of course, the gravity is moving from the northwest to the southwest, and even more so today now, from the southwest to the southeast. If you want to talk about where most Christians are in the world today, it's not the United States of America. It is Africa and Eastern Asia. If you want to talk about where the church is growing most rapidly today, it's not, of course, America, certainly not Europe. It's not even Latin America and South America anymore. It's Africa and East Asia. So when you ask yourself, what is the largest Catholic country in the world? Don't say Italy. Don't say Boston. Don't say Montreal. It's the Philippines. That's the largest Catholic country in the world. There are more Anglicans and Episcopalians in Nigeria and Uganda than in either England or the United States. And there are more Presbyterians in South Korea than in either Scotland, of course where Presbyterianism started, or the United States. More Assemblies of God in Brazil than in the United States. Today there are 1,500 missionaries from Africa and Asia working in England. Talk about upside down. We always thought about the northeast and the northwest as the missionary centers to the south, east and west. 1,500 missionaries from Africa and Asia working in pagan England. The average Christian in the world today is not a well-dressed Caucasian suburban male, but a poor, brown-skinned woman living in a third world megacity. If you were just going to describe what the average Christian in the world is like, that's who it would be. While European Christianity has become a cultural memory and North American Christianity hangs on as one form of cultural identification, Christianity in ever-expanding sections of Africa, Latin America, and Asia is dynamic, life-transforming, and revolutionary. If often, this is what Tim was talking about last night, also wild, ill-informed, and undisciplined. I had the privilege of being in the country of Chad in October, where... In 50 years, which is not that long, I'm, I'm 49, almost. This is my lifespan. One-third of the entire country has come to Christ. One out of every three people you run into in the entire country has become a Christian in just 50 years. Think of what that would be like if that were Bloomington. In the last 50 years, one out of every three people you ran across in town had become a Christian in the last 50 years. That would be amazing. They have one school in the entire country, one Bible school, a 
at the Bible school level, 38 students, and of course, none of the students have any books. So they can't afford books. The average income for the average family is $10 a month. So to buy a Greek New Testament would take four months of the entire family income. So, I mean, there are no books. So you're trying to train the leaders for a church that now occupies one-third of the entire population. You've got 38 students, and they can't have any books. And is it any surprise that you run into a lot of wild, ill-informed, and undisciplined stuff? Because most of the churches don't have pastors, let alone pastors who can read and write. This is not, of course, unique to Chad. This is happening all over the place. Think of the house churches in China. Think of the spread of the church in rural India. Mark Noel goes on to say, India, with its 1,800-year history of up-close negotiation with other world religions and with rigid class divisions, and China, with its breakthroughs among both highly educated intellectual elites and practitioners of traditional religions among the rural poor, China probably has the highest percentage of Christians with PhDs of any ethnic group in the world, may be the next sources of Christian leadership in the world. Why? Because what are they doing? They're negotiating every day with other religions. And they have a highly educated intellectual culture, a large majority of which is becoming Christian. So you've got massive amounts of believers in other cultures without education. You've got a center developing in India that is rubbing shoulders every day with other world religions, not just at the lower level of society, but at every level of society. And so, and this is probably one of the most important books around right now for missions, in this book called The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, written by this guy Philip Jenkins at Penn, he says, and he documents it well, that amid the great diversity of Christian churches in the southern world, a common feature is this, the critical idea that God intervenes directly in everyday life. Now, they may not, in Chad, understand yet what are the biblical perspectives they need to bring on the cultural issues they're facing. But they're convinced of two things. They're convinced that God acts in their lives. And they're convinced the Bible's the Word of God. And when they put those two things together, that the Bible's the Word of God and the God of the Bible's acting in their lives, they are not tempted to say that Christianity is just one more cultural version of any one of a panorama of religions from which you can choose. I mean, one-third are believers, but two-thirds of their country are still Muslims and animists. And they're not saying to themselves, well, you know, we think Christianity is just one more viable world religion. No, they think the Bible is the Word of God. They think the God of the Bible is acting powerfully in their lives to reveal Himself and to redeem a people unto Himself. They don't have the kind of intellectual backdrop, of course, like India does, that could provide leadership probably for the next generation. But they've got the pillars of that leadership and so Jenkins says that the frozen north, whether it's northeast or northwest, is going to have to learn from the south. Once again, the uniqueness of Christianity, the supremacy of Scripture, 
and the reality of a God who acts. Because that's what we no longer have. And they are living out every day as they try to come to grips with the other world religions that they rub shoulders with every day. I know this isn't very... This is the opposite of PowerPoint. Flashy slides, colors. You know, we need a color. Read this. There. I mean, this is about as boring as you can get. So just hang in there. But I, I can't remember to say all this off the top of my head, so I just put it on the overhead. What are we up against then? We're up against, of course, a culture in which it is very hard for us to say the Bible is the one and only supreme truth of God's self-revelation. The God of the Bible is supernaturally active in our lives, in every circumstance of our lives, working to make us like Jesus and to spread His kingdom. And Christianity is not one of many religious options. What is taken for granted in the South is now culturally unacceptable and very difficult for us in the frozen North to maintain because of the amazing cultural pressures against us. And that's why people like Jenkins and Noel say that the next generations of Christian leadership may not be coming anymore from the North. But those 1,500 missionaries that have gone now to England may be producing the leadership we need for the coming generations. But it's going to be hard when they get there. It's going to be really hard when they get there. Because Leslie Newbegin, and if you haven't read any of his stuff, it's very, very interesting on missions. You know, he was a career, lifelong missionary in India, but then he got, they thought, too old. So they retired him from India after almost four decades, 1936 to 1974. But he just felt like he had a lot more to go. So he just worked for 23 more years as a pastor in England when he got back. And he compares his 23 years of ministering in England with his 40 years in India. And he says that he never encountered anything as hard in India as what he encountered in England when it came to Christian conviction and standing for the truth of the Gospel and the evangelistic outreach of the Kingdom of God. Because, he says, declarations of the Gospel as a public truth. Remember, last night, not just true for me, but true for everybody. Not a personal truth that's private. Not a truth, then, that is equal no matter who holds it, just as long as they hold it sincerely. Not a truth, therefore, that is relative, but a public truth. Declarations of the Gospel as a public truth that makes a personal... Oops, sorry. No, I'm really goofing up. That makes a personal claim on others are immediately met with skepticism. Throughout the West, there is a general mistrust of the motives and message of anyone who claims to represent God and His Word. So in this regard, Leslie Newbegin's reflections for almost four decades as a missionary in India, 23 years as a missionary in England, he died recently, are instructive. In return to Birmingham, England, this great missionary statesman discovered that ministry there is, quote, much harder than anything I met in India. There is a cold contempt for the Gospel which is harder to face than opposition. A lot of opposition, a lot of persecution in places like Chad, 
and India. When I was in Chad, I was speaking in the back of the room. There's a small group of younger men, pastors of a new generation. And they said, oh, those guys are the sons of the pastors who were buried alive in 1972, 1973. 1972-73, when the gospel was, was growing, the animistic leaders, together with Muslim approval, gathered up all of the main pastoral leadership of the country, brought them to the capital city, publicly asked them to recant their faith, and when they said no, they buried them alive in, in front of everybody after they had them dig their own graves. And, of course, as is so often the case, the blood of the martyrs is to seize the church. And it was amazing to see then the sons of martyred pastors going on to pastor in the next generation. Flat-out op opposition is sometimes a lot easier to withstand because the lines are clear than just the kind of everyday normal skepticism and hard-heartedness and cold contempt that you meet in just everyday middle-class America or England. Newbigin says it's harder than anything he faced in India. Much rather face opposition than simply cold contempt. And when you mix together cold contempt with materialistic self-satisfaction, oh, man. He says, England is a pagan society and the development of a truly missionary encounter with this very tough form of paganism is the greatest intellectual and practical task facing the church. And I think it's a task that must be faced because what do we have left to offer to the south in the midst of the now frozen and burnt over north? If I can mix metaphors like that, if you can be frozen and burnt over simultaneously. We have still, I think, to offer to the south from the north the fruits of and the resources of generations of theological education and church stability and learning from our own mistakes in a way that we can bring theological education and leadership to the rest of the world if we survive and help them not have to relive all the mistakes that we've already lived through and bring to them theological education and help them get the kinds of pillars of support they need in their church life to anchor this wild and woolly church growth movement that's going on. Because zeal without knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. We don't have much zeal left, but at least we can help them with our knowledge. If we can survive. But Newbigin says this is the greatest intellectual and practical task facing the church. And I think he intentionally says capital C church. The church universal. America, I think, is still strategic for the global mission of the church. If we can survive the cold contempt and cultural denigration of public truth. And that's where the contempt is centered, as we saw last night. If you think your truth is everyone's truth, you will get in the relativistic postmodern culture in which we live, just scorn and contempt. If 
they just don't ignore you altogether. But if we can survive, if we can continue to maintain the authority of Scripture, the centrality and exclusivity of Christ, as we'll talk about tomorrow, together with a conviction that God is alive and well and at work in the life of His people, if we can maintain that, we can have a lot to give in the next generations, if not in terms of the numbers of believers, certainly in terms of establishing the quality of belief itself. For as Newbigin observed, when the church affirms the gospel is public truth and is challenging the whole of society to wake out of the nightmare of subjectivism and relativism, to escape from the captivity of the self turned in upon itself, and to accept the calling which is addressed to every human being to seek, acknowledge, and proclaim the truth. Remember we saw how in the history of the West, truth went from being located in the Catholic Church to being located in Catholic reason, if you will, i.e. universal reason, to being located in the particular individual relativistic self. And that kind of nightmare of subjectivity and relativism, captivity to the self, that kind of imprisonment has to be, has to be overcome, resisted if we're to survive and if we're to give to our brothers and sisters around the world in the generations to come. Finally then, we ought not to be shocked by the fact that persecution of Christians around the world has reached proportions of such magnitude that we are facing a new holocaust. As the Jewish human rights activist of the Hudson Institute, Michael Horowitz, has observed, quote, the mounting persecution of Christians eerily parallels the persecution of Jews during much of Europe's history. And Barrett, you know, the, the great documenter of all contemporary church history in his massive dictionary, what's going on, you know, has shown quite clearly, and nobody disputes this, that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the church. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the church. An average of 159,000 Christians a year are now losing their lives simply and only because they name the name of Jesus. And that does not then begin to scratch the surface because there are 200 to 250 million believers who suffer regularly physical and political persecution and 400 million Christians who live under a restriction on their religious liberty. Chad's a good example. They don't bury you alive anymore in Chad for naming the name of Jesus, at least not right now. But you probably won't graduate from high school if you're a Christian because the government knows that education is the way to upward mobility and they have a list that they draw up every year of those who will be allowed to graduate from high school. It doesn't matter if you get the grades and pass the test. You have to get the grades, pass the test, and your name has to be on this list. And so at the end of every year, the government posts a list of who will be allowed to graduate. And if you pass all the tests and and got all the grades done and all that stuff, and your name's on the list, well, then you have a choice. You can either forget it and go back to being a subsistence farmer, or you can do your senior year in high school over again and hope that your name will be on the list next year. The average high school graduate in Chad's about 24, 25 years old because it usually takes five or six years of persistence, seven years, to get out of high school. 
Because you can't go to college unless you graduate from high school. And only 5% of Chadians will be allowed to graduate from high school. 5% of high school. And then, of course, a small percent of those will go to university. So it's one great way to make sure that most of the people remain subsistence farmers, except for the lucky few who are on the list. Now, the government's Muslim through and through. Who do you think gets to be on the list? How many Christians do you think are on the list every year? Not many. Sometimes not any. So, we were, when I was staying there, being helped by a young man who was in his third senior year. And he was a Christian, and he was just not going to give up. He was in his third senior year. It wasn't clear whether the government would put any Christians on the list that year or not, this year or not. So, it may not cost you your life, but it may mean that you're going to be a subsistence farmer the rest of your life and have an annual income of $120. Is it worth it to follow Jesus when you know that that's your future? In that kind of situation, we constantly run across people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God, Jesus is the only way to be saved, and God is actively at work in the lives of His people. In our culture, because of its the dominance of postmodernism, with its conviction that all truth is personal, therefore all truth is equal in value, therefore all truth is relative, we have no longer these pillars of truth, even in many evangelical churches. Instead, we have a growing encroachment of pluralism and inclusivism into the mindsets and heart sets of God's people. Instead of the age-old biblical conviction of exclusivism, which we'll talk about tonight in general and tomorrow, see undergirded from Acts chapter 3 and 4. Because what I'd like to do tomorrow is actually uh, teach and preach through Acts chapters 3 and 4, which give a tremendous biblical foundation for the exclusive claims of Jesus and our exclusive claims about Jesus. But what's going on now? in the weak and cold, burnt-over northern regions of the world. Well, the most common view these days is what we could call pluralism. Because if now all truth is personal, therefore all truth is equal, therefore all truth is relative, nowhere is that more important than religion. Religion is like food. You know, you might like Thai food. I might like Tibetan food. My wife and I had tried Tibetan food tonight for the very first time. You have to come to Bloomington, Indiana to discover Tibetan food. So there's a lot of cultural diversity in your town. You know, most people think then that religions like food. You like Thai food. I like McDonald's. And, you know, McDonald's may not be as nutritious as Thai food or Tibetan food or Chinese food or your mother's cooking. But, you know, you're probably not going to starve to death either place. And so, as long as you're all sort of getting along, one 
one food might be a little bit better than others, but really, isn't it just a matter of taste? Some people like hamburgers. Other people like tofu. I mean, aren't taste buds just culturally conditioned and everyone's taste buds are pretty much the same? Isn't religion just like food? Every religion is independently valid in and of itself for its own people and culture since religion is nothing more than a culturally relative expression of humanity's search for and experience of God? Doesn't everybody in every culture who is sincere at least have an equal access to God? Christ can't be universally beneficial because everybody hasn't heard about Him. And everybody that hears about Him doesn't believe in Him. But they still may be sincere in other religious ways. So God could not want there to be just one way to Himself. Christ couldn't be universally beneficial. God must be sufficiently available sufficiently available in every culture to lead to salvation. Every religion is independently valid in and of itself for its own people. Because what is religion? Religion is our culturally determined attempts to figure out life. And as long as we sincerely pursue those questions, what happened in the past, where are we going in the future, how do we live with one another today? Where did we come from? How did we get here? What happens when you die? How do you live between getting here and dying? As long as we all sincerely try to figure that out for ourselves in ways that we're taught in our own culture, isn't that okay as long as we at least don't fight with each other about it? I mean, isn't sincerity and tolerance the key to living in this modern world with its plurality of religious expressions. So the plurality of religious expressions leads to pluralism. That every religion is independently valid as long as you hold to it sincerely and don't try to foist it on somebody else. Now that's the most extreme response, of course, to the multiplicity of religions in our world. But I think we run into it all the time. You have your food, I have mine. You have your religion, I have mine. You have your way of dressing, I have mine. You have your sports, I have mine. You like your kind of car, I like mine. Religion is just one more human option to be determined in a way that makes sense to you. Now, a lot of people haven't been really happy with that because it just seems to level out religion too much. And when you begin to compare religions... Some religions seem to be better than others. Some seem to do a better job of figuring out how we got here and where we're going and how to live in between. And so, a lot of Christians wouldn't say, well, I'm a pluralist. You know, I think all religions are just 100% equal. It doesn't really matter. Pay your religious money and take your choice. No, a lot of Christians would say, we have to move from pluralism to inclusivism. And this idea actually started among some Catholic theologians, but it's found its way into Protestantism big time. And inclusivism says that all religions and cultures have a basic saving knowledge of God. But Christianity is the best and has the most complete understanding of this saving knowledge. So Christianity is best and all-inclusive, and it's the final revelation of God. 
It may not be the only revelation of God, but it's the best. And so, if you want to have the best, you become a Christian. But if it's too hard, or you're in another culture where you've never heard about Jesus yet, it's okay. You just have to kind of muck it through with, you know, a second-rate religion. But you'll still be okay, because what are you going to find out in the end? You're going to find out that all sincere believers in all religions were really anonymous Christians. Jesus saves everybody. They just don't know it yet. In pluralism, Jesus doesn't save anybody because all religions are just cultural expressions of humanity's attempt to get on with it. And Jesus is just one cultural expression of how to figure out life. But He is no more valid than Buddha or Mohammed you know, or your anthropology teacher in high school latest ideas about where we came from, where we're going, and how to live in between. In pluralism, Jesus is not universally beneficial. He's just our particular way of symbolizing what we're, how we're trying to live our lives. But in inclusivism, and this is why it's so appealing to Christians, inclusivism says Jesus is the Savior of the world. They just don't know it yet. And the sincere Buddhist, when she dies or he dies, finds him or herself in heaven with God because Jesus died for them and their sincerity in their religious path was leading them to Jesus and they would have believed in Jesus had they just had the opportunity and the information. But minus the opportunity and the information, they can simply stay in their own cultural expression and they'll be okay as long as they're sincere. Sincere believers in other religions are all anonymous Christians. So this is a nice thing because this allows us to, to hold on to our Christian convictions about Jesus being the Savior of the world. We just don't have to become imperialistic and make everybody believe like we do. Which is kind of nice and comfortable. The third option, of course, is exclusivism. Which says that no... Salvation is found only in explicit faith in the God of the Bible who is now revealed in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And so, one must come to an explicit faith in the God of the Bible manifested in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the nations. And apart from that, there is no salvation. Acts 4.12 will be our text for consideration tomorrow morning. And so there's no such thing as anonymous Christians. And there's no such thing as all religions being independently valid in and of themselves. This, don't you agree, is a very hard thing to say in our day and age, in our culture. And that's why missiologists who study The growth and leadership patterns of the church say that the next generation of leadership may not be coming from the north anymore. We've got the money, but we do we have the Christian conviction. We've got the schools, but do we have the theological fiber? We've got the history, but do we have the conviction that will give us a future? Or will this 
cultural morass of our imprisonment to the subjectivity of the self and the relativism of our culture cause us in the end to give up the pillars upon which the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the kingdom resides. Right? The authority of Scripture, the centrality and exclusivity of Christ, and the conviction that God is active in the world today to call people unto Himself. I have to admit that when I run into sincere people, tonight, we're in this little restaurant where they serve Tibetan food down on 6th, 5th, 4th Street, one of those things. Um, forget which one it is, where they have all the houses converted into restaurants, you know. And they have on the left side of the menu the, a short little history of Tibet. And the, to say the history of Tibet is to say the history of Buddhism. And they have the statement there about how ever since the 7th century B.C., Tibet has been ruled by incarnations of their lamas, you know, their spiritual leaders who they believe to be the living incarnation of God. And their country has always been governed in every generation by the living incarnation of God. Now, the problem happened that China took over Tibet. So the Dalai Lama, who is the latest living incarnation of God, of course, had to flee the country. Is now living in exile. And massive amount of Tibetan Buddhists went with them. And some even made their way to Bloomington. You know? So, I, I mean, I have to say, I read that. I'm surrounded by all the, you know, the beautiful pictures of Tibet and the culture and the big palace monastery on the wall. And, you know, one of our waitresses was, I don't know if she was Tibetan, but she certainly wasn't, doesn't look like me. You know, and, and you read about the history of the persecution of Tibetan Buddhists and how sincere they are and peace-loving. And, and I, I just admit publicly that I am such a creature of my culture that to maintain the exclusive claims of Christ, when you rub shoulders with people who are sincere adherents of other religions, leads me, if not to go to pluralism, because I can find a lot, a lot of rotten what I consider to be rotten religious options out there, if not to go to pluralism, at least to go to inclusivism and say, well, I don't don't have to really upset the apple cart, do I? Can't I just let sincere people well enough alone? And You know, Jesus will save them in the end, so He'll get all the glory anyway. When they die, they'll find out that even though they didn't know it, they were anonymous Christians. Or, do I have to continue to maintain even though it goes against my entire cultural grain, that all other religious options in the world are not equally valid. They're not even second best options of the one truth. They are not salvific at all. But are manifestations of hard-heartedness and idolatry. When the waitress is so nice, when she fills up my water glass and so friendly, and do you, do you ever feel that? Or is it just me? So, my last 
thing I'd like to talk about tonight then is what I constantly have to remind myself about when oh I see the bosom. When I'm trying to answer the question, why should I still believe that the Bible's the only word of God, not just the best word of God, and not just one of many words from God? Right? It's not pluralism. The Bible's just one of many words, they're all equal. No. And it's not inclusivism. The Bible's the best word of God. It's just not the only word of God. We've been battling this in our own family because my oldest son worked for six months at the Omega Institute. And you know what that is? That's the center for Eastern religion and the New Age movement in America. It's their version of, oh, what's that big camp, famous Christian camp in uh, California um, where everybody used to go? Forest Hill, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, I don't know where you're going to Indiana, but think of the most important Christian camp you've ever heard of. That's what this is for all of the Eastern religions and New Age movements in America. And it's, you know, when the Dalai Lama, we just mentioned a minute ago, when he comes to America, where does he go? He goes and stays at the Omega Institute. This, this is the top think tank and camp for every religion in America except Christianity, of course. Well, after spending two whole summers working there, it's a long story how I got there and all this jazz, but, you know, my son said, you know, I think Jesus is the best way, but I, I don't think I can say He's the only way. Eight presuppositions needed to answer the question, is Jesus the only way? And why do we believe that the Bible is not simply one of many words, and not even the best of many words, but the only word from God? And that... Following Jesus is not just one of many ways, not just the best of many ways, but the only way to God. Yeah. We're going to have to look at eight presuppositions needed to answer the question. I don't think we can even answer that question until we first get square on these things. First, every statement about God is a statement about us. Since we exist in relationship relationship to Him as dependent upon Him whether we know it or not. Genesis 1, 26-28. We're all made in the image of God, which I take to mean made to be dependent on Him to reflect His character, that is to say, His sovereign self-sufficiency in our life of dependence and to manifest the fact that God is King by ruling and reigning as His vice-regents. That's not what I understand the Kingdom of God to be. The Kingdom of God is the expression of those who have been created in the image of God, fulfilling their mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and express dominion. That is to say, live out the dominion of dependency. We are to express God's sovereign self-sufficiency in our lives by living out lives of dependence on Him in love to one another. Because as I trust in Him to meet my needs, I'm freed up to meet the needs of others. So to be in the image of God means to live in dependence on the Sovereign King in such a way that you can carry out His will fulfilled in love towards others. Because loving others is the manifestation of the sovereign self-sufficiency of God. His commitment to meet our needs frees us up to meet the needs of others. So when we talk about God, we're talking about ourselves. Everything we say about God is a statement about who we understand ourselves to be. And, of course, vice versa, Calvin would argue. 
And I think he was right. Everything we say about ourselves is a statement about God. We have been created as creatures to live in relationship to Him as dependent on Him whether we know it or not. And so, every religion's conception of God is also their conception of who they understand humanity or what they understand humanity to be. And if you don't know the one true God, you end up inevitably with a screwed up conception of humanity. Hence, since religions in the world that don't flow out of God's self-revelation of Himself in the Word are extrapolating about God based on who they are, they inevitably get it wrong. Because we can only understand who we are when we understand who God is. And we can only understand who God is as He's revealed Himself. So if you're not starting with God's self-revelation, but you're starting with yourself and trying to figure out life based on your experiences, you're bound to get it wrong. Because we were never created to understand life in relationship to ourselves. We were always created to understand life in relationship to God. So, we have to be careful. Every statement about God is a statement about ourselves. And if our statements about God don't start with God's statements about Himself, we're going to misunderstand ourselves radically. So, when we think about how to understand other religions, we can't go with pluralism as if everybody's experience all around the world is an equally valid expression of who God is since every religion starts with human experience except for the history of redemption revealed in Scripture, which does not start with human statements about God, but always starts with God's statements and activities about Himself. So that's the first point. You can't start from the bottom up. You've got to start from the top down. And Christianity, the Scriptures, are the only religious worldview in the world that begins with God's self-revelation. Secondly, God is a specific personal being with particular characteristics, not a general principle or idea or experience. God is not silly putty in everybody's hands that we can simply mold in accordance, of course, with our own latest Experiences. He's not a general principle. He's not an idea. He's a specific personal being with particular characteristics that we would not know if he had not revealed himself. So, of course, the reason why I can't be in the end a pluralist or an inclusivist is because I think that the key is revelation, not human experience. Thirdly, in view of God's holiness, it's revealed himself in that way. The holy other God. Jesus is the Savior and Judge of the world. And He is the Savior of the world because He's also the Judge of the world. 1 John 4.14 2 Corinthians 5.10 Acts 10.42-43 He is the Savior of the world because He's the Judge of the world. He's not a symbol of God's universal presence. We've got to be careful that we don't downsize Jesus into an abstract idea like love. 
or peace or kindness or today, tolerance. You know? I, I mean, I have to admit, when I first became a Christian during the Jesus movement, my first images of Jesus were really like a flower child who went around kissing babies and handing out tulips or whatever flower flower children. It wasn't tulips. I never saw a tulip. Daisies. There we go. There's some other ex-hippies. There we go. Daisies. I, I knew tulips weren't it, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And it took a long time before I realized that Jesus was the judge and therefore also the Savior of the world. Or because He's the Savior, He's also the judge. They're interpenetrating, mutually definable concepts. And of course, He is in the end a person. The incarnation of the Word of God is the living Word. Again, He's not one more abstract idea. Well, this is problematic because modernism and, of course, postmodernism presupposes, but I didn't put postmodernism because, remember, I think it's just sort of a blip on the radar screen. Modernism presupposes the innate goodness or neutrality of humanity and the sincerity of religious seekers. It really thinks that everybody is basically good and getting better if they're sincere. And religion is if it's sincere religion, the greatest expression of our innate goodness. Or if not good, at least neutral. Whereas the Bible teaches total depravity. The total depravity of all humanity born into a sinful state. In sin, my mother conceived me, Psalm 51, 5. Not the happiest grandparent text. we got new grandparents in our midst at 3.30 yesterday afternoon. In sin, my mother conceived me. The universal, total depravity of all humanity. So again, of course, if you start from the ground up and think that religion is just the culturally appropriate and diverse expression of mankind's search for the good, the true, and the beautiful, you're presupposing an innate goodness or neutrality and sincerity in humanity that the Bible says just ain't there. The most that will happen is that people will create a deity in their own image that will justify their reliance on themselves and make deities that serve them as they work for that deity. Right? Placing the gods of their religions in their debt. And Isaiah said in Isaiah 64.4 that no one's ever heard of God like ours who works for those who wait for Him. It's the exact opposite of religion. In all the religions of the world created by the depravity of humanity, people work for God. Because if you do great things for God, then God's in your debt and you can call the shots. And the pictures of the gods of the world are weak, dependent gods who need humanity to do great things for them. The ancient gods were pictured as hungry. And so it was your job to feed them. Because most people are farmers, right? So in the ancient world, when most people are farmers, the gods are hungry. And you bring in your produce and feed the deities as they rely on you. And of course, if they get full enough, free course meal, they might just get happy enough to give you back something you really need, like more children or health or wealth or something. But you better 
Make God happy first. Feed Him first. Feed her first. So that when the the God is happy or the goddess is happy, before they fall off into slumber for the night, they might do something for you in return. Not in the Bible. In the Bible, we don't work for God. God works for us. The giver gets the glory and God has no needs. No one's ever heard of a God like ours who works for those who wait for Him. Now, in the ancient world, of course, gods were pictured as hungry. We're farmers. We feed Him or her. In the modern world, of course, most of us aren't, aren't uh, farmers anymore. Most of our depictions of deities outside the Bible aren't hungry gods. You know what they are instead? Lonely gods. I mean, in the great therapeutic culture in which we live, the deities that we create in our own image are hungry, not for food, but for relationships. They're lonely gods. And this, this comes right into Christianity. God was so lonely that He had to create a world so we could have fellowship with Him and meet His needs. Because somehow the Father, Son, and the Spirit just couldn't be happy without us. And so creation is viewed as God working to meet His own needs for fellowship. And I don't know what it will be next. Maybe the next great deities created in our image will be you know, the technologically deficient God. Right? And we're moving there fast. God can't give children to whom He designs according to His will. We need to help Him. Either give children where He hasn't granted big cloning debate, right? Or, of course, take away the children He has granted. So maybe we're already starting to move towards a technologically deficient God who can't quite run the universe. You know, He sort of does a B-minus job and He needs us to help Him. You know, He gets sort of 80% of the way home and we take Him the rest of the way with our latest great invention. I don't know. But be careful because the gods created by by the human enterprise are going to reflect the depravity of humanity. The attempt to justify our own existence by contributing to the deity. Rather than realizing we've been created in the image of God and live in dependence on Him for all things. Proclaiming as public truth the one true God who has no needs, who's sovereignly self-sufficient, who works for those who wait for Him. Because the giver, of course, in the end gets all the glory. Five, the modern concern is with privilege and fairness. Defined as equal opportunity. The biblical concerns with election. If the giver gets all the glory, why is salvation a matter of sovereign election? To make it clear without a shadow of doubt, Romans 9.11, that becoming part of God's people is not dependent on any human distinctive. Not your parentage. Not the color of your eyes. The length of your toenails. The amount of education you have had or haven't had, your IQ, your musical ability, your lack of musical ability, right? But the only foundation for membership in the people of God is His grace, poured out according to His sovereign will as an act of unconstrained election. Who wants to hear that in the modern world? When the modern world is concerned with privilege and fairness, defined as equal opportunity. Well, there couldn't be one true religion because then most people in the world wouldn't be saved and that wouldn't be fair. 
is the gut reaction of our culture. But you know, I have to be honest, and this is an amazing thing I didn't realize so clearly until I went to Chad. I'd been to some places like Romania and Latvia and East Germany before the wall came down. Some places that were pretty tough. You know, I've been to Mexico and seen people living in cardboard boxes. But I had never seen a place like Chad before. 1996 or 7, I remember what year it was exactly now. The UN said Chad was the poorest country in the world. You know, there is no such thing as fairness at any level on this planet. Even at the most fundamental levels, like raw materials. Why is Chad one of the poorest countries in the world? It's not because they don't work hard. Subsistence farmers work very, very hard all day long, every day. There's no lack of labor in Chad. You know what they don't have? They don't have water. There's only one little lake and one little river in the whole country. And in two more weeks, it's going to be 130 degrees every day for four months. And they had this thing called the Sahara Desert. And in God's providence, He put a whole lot of His people in a place where there's not enough food because there's not enough water and the sun's too hot for too long to grow anything and so you're only going to eat once a day and a lot of people are going to starve. And in the midst of that place, God's people exist. Now, you say to yourself, man... How many lakes are there and rivers are there and electric water pumps are there in Indiana? Why in God's providence would we have what we have and they don't have what they don't have? I can't explain it. I certainly can't take credit for it. I can't take credit for the rivers of America. I can't take credit for the fact that I live here and not there. All of this at the macro level is a reminder to us of our lives at the micro level. It's all election. I mean, isn't it one of the first things you've got to teach your kids when they start to say, why did Johnny get picked and I didn't? Don't you have to say, life isn't fair, sweetheart? Especially not in a fallen world. And ultimately, under God's sovereignty, He doesn't even distribute natural resources in any kind of equitable fashion. It's a fallen world. I don't explain it. I can't understand it all. But I know that who I am at the material level and who I am at the spiritual level is a matter of God's grace completely and wholly. And this stands against the modern democratic impulse that everything should be equal opportunity. Christianity depends on its history of redemption, not on private, personal, mystical experiences. This is a big presupposition. In the world in which we live, People think that the primary place God reveals Himself is the human heart. Right? It's me and Jesus. My quiet time. That's where I get in touch with God the most. Christianity's mysticism. Immediate, direct, personal revelation. We talked about this a little bit last night. The Holy Spirit tells me what the Bible means. Now just extrapolate that to your interchange with world religions. If you think Christianity is mysticism... What right do you have to compare your mystical experiences with anybody else's? When a Sufi Muslim can get a lot more religious experience, a lot more bang for his religious buck than anything I've ever seen in Protestant Evangelical Reformed churches. I remember when we were having a little missions conference and some old former students of mine came back from Senegal and they said, you know, now you know us, you've known us for years, what we're about to tell you is true and we're going to show you a video and you're not going to believe it till you see it. But we go into these, this village where we live, and they have these 
animistic, demon-inspired, seance kind of like experiences. And when their religious leaders reach the height of their religious-induced, spiritual, demon-inspired trances, you know what they can do? They can take needles and knives and just poke them through them and pull them out again and they don't bleed and nothing happens. And I wouldn't have seen it if I wasn't, wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it. Boom, watch this video. It's not for public consumption, but how do you explain this? And there they are. People putting knives through them, you know. It's not magic. I mean, there they are. Five, you know, these are people I taught. Normal, everyday Western Americans saying, look, we saw this on our own eyes. This is the kind of religious experience we're up against. But you know what? They're all scared to death to, be, to dig a well. You know why? Because their spirits live under the ground. And if you dig a well and take their water, they'll kill your children. So they all drink from the polluted stream down the road where all the garbage is thrown and everything, and they're all getting sick. And the only people that dig wells are the drunks because they just have to keep themselves self-medicated all the time because they know they're infringing on the demon's territory. So you know what we did to witness to the power of Jesus Christ? We dug a well. And we gave the water to our children. And they gathered around to see if our children wouldn't get sick and died. Well, God reveals Himself in space and time. And the space and time is recorded in the Bible and documented there for us. Sometimes He reveals Himself to us privately, immediately, in dreams and visions. But it doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often in the Bible. But we never believe that Christianity depends on that. It depends on the history of redemption. That's a big thing. It's a big presupposition to maintain in our day and age. Lastly, salvation is the consequence of God's special and specific self-revelation to us, made possible by the cross and the Spirit, not the result of our religious impulse reaching up to God based on His general revelation in nature. You can learn enough from an oak tree to know that God exists and He's more powerful than you are, but you can't learn enough from an oak tree to give your life to God in light of Jesus Christ. You can learn the reality of God from an oak tree, but not the grace of God. You need the cross and the Spirit declared as the center point of redemptive history. And for that, you've got to have missionaries who go out not to preach themselves, but to be conduits of the Scriptures. To counteract all religious impulses. To declare again that God has revealed Himself in space and time, deposited in His Word, and available here and now for those who will entrust themselves to Him. Because Scripture is the sufficient as well as authoritative revelation of God's will. It's all we've got, but it's all we need. Let's pray. Lord, help us now, again, in this year, to be reminded of the presuppositions of our faith. That we might maintain our conviction in a pluralistic world and not become pluralists or inclusivists, but remain confident you've revealed yourself and that the height of this revelation is your son 
and that we can find life in Him and in Him alone. Help us, Lord, then I pray. And help us to be good. To do good. Not just for our own culture, but for our brothers and sisters around the world. Use us to that, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, questions. We've got 15, 20 minutes for questions before the dessert. So... Um, in your experience in Chad, how did uh, you see, or how did the how did um, the believers there talk to Muslims? How did they minister to them? Or yeah, it's a great question, and um, it's I think it's something that they're that they're struggling with because most Muslims cannot. Uh, publicly at least, debate the competing truth claims of the Quran versus the Scriptures. I mean, it's, not against, it's against Muslim law to even ask historical questions about the Quran because it came down as a matter of dictation, you know, from God directly to Muhammad. And you can't ask historical questions. And you can't do comparative study. You know, well, let's look at your version of Abraham's life and ours and we'll show you how yours came from ours and how it got... You can't do that in public discourse with Muslims. And, of course, they've already been taught through generations that the Bible is this inferior revelation of Christianity. So, anyway, they have found that what is most effective in their culture, because people know who's Christian and who isn't, you know, is to act in the name of Christ to do things that Muslims, in their wildest imagination, would never do for Christians, and then do it explicitly because they're Christians in the name of Jesus. So, I'll give you a good example. This is a very poor church, as I mentioned. So they had this great missionary movement last year. They called it Christ for Chad. And all the churches there encouraged their members to give 10 cents that year for missions. It doesn't sound like a lot, but if your whole yearly cashing comes only 120 bucks, I don't know what percentage it would be. But that, but that was a sacrifice. So at the end of the year, they collected 10 cents from every family in these churches. And then at the next holiday break, they sent out, I forget the number now, Deborah. Do you remember the number of young people? It was a big number. Like 500, I want to say. I can't remember, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. They sent out all their young people to all the Muslim villages up north, which typically, you know, in poor countries like that, are dirty and run down. And, and so they just went in teams of young people, and they just cleaned up the place. And they just spent two weeks there cleaning up the garbage, you know, repairing the walls, you know, re-sweeping the streets, just doing whatever they could in two weeks to make the place nicer. And, of course, the people at first were suspicious, and then they come out and say, why are you doing this? And they say, we're doing it because of Jesus. He's real in our lives, and this is what He's calling us to do. And that kind of love, where you consider the needs of others more important than your own, and you do it in the name of Jesus, is very powerful. I'll give you another example. One of the Christian leaders of Chad happens through some, all these circumstances to have some contacts in the West. These people in the West sent him some money so that he could dig a well in his own yard. Water's a big deal there. So he built this, and with a pump, right in his own yard. This is a big deal. Now, whenever this happens in villages in Chad, because it happens periodically, people get money to dig a well, the people immediately go into business because you can sell the water. So instead of having to walk you know, a half a mile for water, you can just go across the street 
get water from your neighbors. So the big question was, how much are they going to charge for this water? And so the day the well was done, all the neighbors gathered around to find out the price. And the Christian family came out and said, we're going to give the water away for free because Jesus is the living water. Now, their backyard has become, because of that, the center of village life, of course, because that's where the water source is. So now, his wife has this all-day-long mission in the backyard because she stays out there you know, as much as she can and just talks to the hundreds of women and children that are coming all day to fill up the water buckets. It's great. And it's free, and they just can't believe this. I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? Giving away water. And it's not lost on people that they're doing this because they know Jesus. They say, this is what Jesus would want us to do. So you give the cup of water, but you give it in Jesus' name. You say, this is what Jesus would want to do. This is what he enables us to do. He meets our needs, makes us happy, so we're free to meet the needs of others. We're not just thinking about ourselves. So I think those have been some of the things that they've been trying to do. Um, those are two concrete examples. But it's always that interchange between word and deed, I think. And then, of course, in Muslim cultures, often you know that the front line of evangelism often takes place through some kind of miracle because it's a power struggle between these truth claims. And so what they'll often do, too, is they'll pray for their Muslim neighbors when something you know, terrible happens. They'll go and say, you know, you know we're Christians. We just want to let you know we're going to pray to Jesus about this. And then often Jesus will do something to show the efficacy of their prayers. And people start to say, ooh, maybe Jesus is who they say he is. Uh, you said that Christianity is the only religion based upon objective revelation and that all other religions are based upon personal mystical experiences. And mainly my question is concerning Islam. I mean, wouldn't they say, or maybe I'm just ignorant, that their entire religion is based upon the Quran? So I, I guess I'm just not understanding yeah. the, that. No, that, that's good. And um, as soon as I said I thought I, I might have mis misspoken in that sense. There are derivations from Scripture. There are other religions that have developed out of Scriptural revelation, but I think they're piggyback religions with no disrespect. Islam, I believe, is a derivation of Judaism and Christianity that Muhammad encountered on his, on his uh, travels since he was a, a caravan man. And so it is piggybacking on the revelation of Scripture. The same thing would be said about, in my view, you know, the only religion that America has ever created, so to speak, Mormonism, which is, I think, piggybacking on the religious upbringing of Joseph Smith in the Christian culture of upstate New York and is really just a recasting of Christianity in light of the frontier values of the America of his day. And also, of course, I don't deny that there are spiritual experiences in other religions because I do think that there is um, a powerful spiritual presence and activity of the enemy in the world. And so I don't deny that other people have wild spiritual experiences and I don't deny that they make claims to revelation. But in the history of the world, I think we can see that other religions are either piggybacking on the revelation of Scripture or they are generated by what I would call false religious experience from another source. 
But that brings up a great question in terms of apologetics because we have to be able to, and it's hard to do, we have to be able to adjudicate, decide between competing truth claims. And in our day and age, you know, we have, as, as the world kind of solidifies around the, the monotheistic religion of the world, I mean, we've got the competing truth claim of Judaism, that Jesus was not the Messiah and therefore the New Testament is not the next stage in, in God's self-revelation, but instead the Mishnah and the Talmud are. So you have to make the... Is, do we believe in the New Testament or do we believe in the Mishnah and the Talmud? And that revolves around Jesus, of course. And then we've got to go the Bible over against the Quran and eventually the Bible over against the Bhagavad Gita and you know, on and on it can go. But that's where the, the, the debate resides, I think. Yeah, it's a great question. Frequently I'll come across people that believe in general, general revelation that God reveals himself in nature, etc. And I often feel like, how do I take this person who believes in the idea of a creator who created this? Or I, I guess, would that be a deist? I, is that the right term? Yeah, for? Uh -huh. And um, express to them that God also gave a specific revelation as well. And that not only that that just is, is a logical thing as well, so because I often feel like the only way to get through to s someone without just talking right about the Bible, is to, to make them see that there's, there's an innate logic in God's specific and general revelation. Yeah. Another good question. Um, in the end, or maybe in the beginning, we always have to say people will only believe what they want to believe. And they will only allow their minds to go where their hearts want to go. And everybody believes then, in essence what they like and love and desire most. So, I don't think, when everything is said and done, anybody will ever come to Christ unless God first changes their hearts. So the basic problem in sharing the gospel in the end or in the beginning is not cognitive but moral. It's not that there's not enough data. It's not that it doesn't make sense. It's not that the Bible's not compelling. It's just that there is a moral hardness and until people are open to want the message of the Bible, they'll never accept that it's true for their lives. So I think we have to offer philosophical responses to the genuine criticisms of those who reject the gospel. However, in doing so, I think we ought to realize that we're never going to ultimately argue them into the kingdom of God. Having said that, I would say that I would like to start all of my arguments not with abstract philosophical discussions about, you know, does there have to be a creator wise enough to create the world we live in, so arguments from cosmological design or something. I would want to start with history again because I think God's always revealed himself in space and time. So I start with the phenomena of Israel, Jesus, and the church and say these are things that everybody, every historian, whether you know, they're pagan or not, everybody accepts the reality of these things, Israel, Jesus, and the church. Now, how do we explain them do we have other explanations for their reality? Or is their own explanation of their reality the truth? Things like the Exodus and the Resurrection. So what is the best and most compelling explanation for the existence of Israel, Jesus as the Messiah, and the, and the ongoing life of the church? I think our own explanation for our own origins is more compelling than any other explanation people come up with. But that's where I would start. I would start with history and with Scripture and its claims and ask if, if, the, if that isn't a more compelling explanation than what other people can come up with. 
Well, we have to be careful because I think, you know, from general revelation, you can get enough to condemn yourself, but you can't get enough to save yourself. I think that's the point of Romans 1. 